Yeah, it's good morning. Uh, well, welcome y'all to church. Uh, if you haven't met me before, my name's Evan. I think I've met most of the people in this room, but I am here because I'm the associate area director for Young Life. Uh, I've lived in Evergreen for about a year doing that. Um, and don't tell Christy, but I am Josh's better half. Uh, and so that is why I'm up here in front of you. And if you've learned anything from my last couple of sermons, what you know is that I like to tell horrible stories about my high school experience and all the terrible things I did. It's like a confessional for me sometimes when it gets recorded. Um, we're going to buck that trend a little today. We're going to talk about some of the horrible things I did in college instead. Uh, and I want to start off with telling you all a story about my friend Chad. Uh, everybody needs a Chad when, when you were in college. Chad was the kind of guy that would force you to drive to Wyoming at 3 a.m. to go gamble at an 18-year-old casino because it's the only one that was close enough to us. Chad is the kind of guy that would see what he could break into, see what he could get on top of just to say he did it. Chad is the kind of guy that somehow sneaks into the World Series uh, with a fake badge and a, and a fake phone and a vest and steals a bat from a dugout. Like, that is who Chad is. <laughs> and Chad is the life of the party. Chad is who you always want to be around. And it was Chad's birthday. This was probably five, six years ago. And we head to this castle. It's down in Colorado Springs. It's called Glen Airy. Uh, and, and it's a big deal. It, it's like a legit castle. It's all stone. It's all super fancy, super nice. Uh, and Chad's buddy Noah used to work there. And Noah, super similar to Chad, decided that when he was leaving, he was going to steal a set of keys so that he always has access to this building whenever he wants to come back. And it's been four or five years since he did it. It was in high school that he was there. And so we go, and we sneak in about 9, 10 p.m. You know, there's guests that are staying there. There's workers that are there, but there's only one person. It's like a smaller staff team. And so there's one person that's like a security guard that's on staff, and they're just patrolling the halls. And so we're keeping an eye out for them and walking around. And there's a crew of like seven or eight of us, and we are not quiet. <laughs> we wake everybody up. We're running down the halls. We're doing what guys do, uh, and we wind up on, on top of this turret, uh, and there's this guy named Dunk. Uh, he's named after a, a raccoon. We'll talk about that in the next sermon. Um, Dunk, it's like 3 a.m. at this point. Dunk falls asleep on top of the turret, and so we're all like, no, let's leave him. Let's just see what happens. Let him wake up here in the morning. So we all ditch. We go down. We start running. We get out of the castle. Dunk is yelling and screaming and coming after us. He catches us at the bottom, and while he's chewing us out, we're looking over his shoulder at a couple golf carts. And they're just sitting there ready for the taking. So you do what boys do. We sneak into their apartments, steal a key off the wall, take a golf cart, romp it around a field. Till one guy, Dunk, who is still mad about us trying to leave him on the turret, is hanging on the side of the golf cart and falls off. And, and Chad is sitting there behind the steering wheel and he sees an opportunity. So Chad immediately whips that golf cart around, does a 180, and starts chasing Dunk down with it, waiting to run over him. And in the midst of all this, there's, there's about six of us hanging onto one golf cart. All of us are hanging onto the sides. Chad is trying to do the tightest turns he can to see who can hold on, who can fall off, who can be run over. And it just slowly devolves. And it gets down to the point where it's just Chad on the cart. Everybody else is running around, and we do this for about an hour in the middle of this grass field. And it gets light enough where the sun starts to come up, and you know people are going to start coming. And so we're, we're like, okay, let's start, let's start putting this back together. Like, let's, uh, let's put the golf cart away. But the sun comes up just enough that you can see what we had actually done to the field. 
And this place was like a manicured, like nicer than any golf course I've ever seen. And that field is destroyed. And some poor landscaping guy's gonna <laughs> lose his mind when he sees it. They're having to reseed everything. And so we see that. We know the consequences are there. We know that the security guards are roaming right, around. And so we kick into our, our fight or flight response and ditch and leave and have never heard from them, never got caught, never heard anything. But I do feel guilty. And that is my confession. So that's the consequences I have to live with. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, we, we all make these choices that we have consequences that we have to live with. Right? And sometimes we make them consciously, and sometimes we don't make them consciously. But we're going to look in 1 Kings and 2 Kings uh, about that a little bit today. Now, if you've never read through 1 or 2 Kings, the way they're originally written was it was all one big book, right? It, it just details the line of kings that comes after King David. So the book of Kings starts with King David passing off his reign to his son Solomon. And, and it really kicks off at King David on his deathbed. And, and what he's doing is he's trying to set a precedent for, hey, this is how kings are supposed to be. This is how our kingdom is supposed to be run. And so he, he charges his son with being faithful to the Lord. And, and that is his overarching, this is my hope for what I'm leaving behind with you. But in classic human form, it's immediately undermined. You see, David, through all of his life, had so many political rivals that he follows it up with, like, hey, follow the Lord, but also all these dudes that wronged me, go kill them, right? There were 613 laws given in the Old Testament. That one made the top 10. That, uh, that's immediately undermining everything he's saying about following the Lord and sets a trend for all of the kings that are going to follow. And they all start giving him this. Solomon asks for wisdom, is given wisdom lives it out for a while, builds a temple that's great for the Lord, and then slowly starts slipping into, yeah, but how much wealth can I get? How many women can I marry? He starts marrying women from other cultures, and, and with them come their gods. And the Israelites start following them and believe in them, and then comes slave labor to build all of his buildings, whatever he wants. And then he has a son that does the same, and his son does it worse. He starts collecting and raising taxes. He does more slave labor to the point where the kingdom winds up, it, it needs to split. It decides that half the people are going to go their own way. So it splits into two kingdoms, uh, northern Israel and southern Judah. And they each have their own kings. And the, the progression keeps going. If you follow kings, it just bounces back and forth between the two, detailing how each king was. And it details them on this criteria. There's just a couple of things that it says about them, but it asks, do they only worship God? Do they get rid of other gods in Israel, and are they faithful to the covenant God? Are they faithful to the covenant with God like David was? There's about 40 kings, eight of them, met that criteria. It's simple. It's just those three questions, and only eight of them could meet it. That is the condition that Israel was under. And so with that, the Lord saw that coming, and what he did is he introduced these roles called prophets. And what prophets were doing, it's not like what we think about a prophet today where you're like, Oh, somebody that can predict a sports game so you can go win a sports bet, like uh, you can see the future. It's not a prophet like that. They're not rubbing a glass crystal ball. What they are is they're in between between God and his people. Their role is to speak on his behalf. Their role is to remind the kings that they are supposed to be guiding this nation under the laws given from the Lord and to remind the people that they're supposed to be a light to other nations. 
Like that is the entirety of their role. And we're going to focus on one prophet specifically. His name's Elijah. He comes up towards the latter half of First Kings. And Elijah is a wild man. Like he, he lived out in the woods. He was constantly like, he just is, we talk about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, everybody thought was Elijah because of the way John the Baptist lived. John the Baptist ate locusts and honey and, and chilled in the woods. And so Elijah did super similar. Coming up, when the Lord called him to. In the time of Elijah, uh, there was this king named King Ahab. Now, this is probably about 850 years before Jesus was around, so it was a while ago. But King Ahab was the king of southern Judah, uh, and, and he was following in the footsteps of everybody behind him, and he, he married this Canaanite woman named Jezebel. And Jezebel, when she moved into the kingdom, she brought along her god Baal. A lot of people call it Baal, Baal. I'm going to call him Baal. And with that, like, like the Lord is very clear that we're supposed to be careful with who we choose to be as a partner because they're going to have an influence on you. And so when she brings that in, Ahab slowly starts to buy into it. It's a better lifestyle. It's an easier lifestyle. Baal is an easier lifestyle than what is to follow the Lord and what is to sit under his law. And so he buys into that, and he slowly starts spreading it out to his people. And more and more and more, it becomes relevant to the point where there's all sorts of prophets that, that sit in their kingdom and worship Baal. But when they worship Baal, what they're really doing is providing comfort for the king and queen. Uh, like they make it to where the God is obedient to them and, and they get to do whatever they feel, whatever they're called to, whatever they want to do. Instead of having any responsibility to the people themselves, like what, the exact opposite of what they're called to. What Ahab winds up looking like is more like Pharaoh, the thing that the Israelites ran from, than, than a king or the Messianic king that they're all trying to line up to. So Elijah sees this. He sees the way that the queen is, is putting all of this in front of him. He sees the way that they're starting to worship these gods, and he wants to challenge them. He's very specific with it. Ahab is still trying to be with God. He's wrestling back and forth. He's trying to worship them both at the same time. He's figuring that I can have the best of both worlds. And, and Elijah is super honest with him. He's like, you cannot be double-minded. You can either worship Baal and say that he is God, or you can worship the Lord and say that he is God, but you cannot have both. And Ahab wrestles with that. And so what Elijah does is he's like, okay, let's put it to the test. Let me put this so in front of your face that you can't help but recognize it. And he does that by calling all of the prophets of Baal, there's 450 of them that were in the kingdom, he calls all of them to this mount up, up in Beersheba. And the challenge that they're going to do is they're going to each build an altar, and they're going to butcher an ox. And each altar gets an ox. The altars are made of wood and stone. And they're just going to pray. And they're going to pray to their gods, and you're going to see which one has the power to light that altar on fire. It's as simple as that. It's very clear. There is no mistaking which god wins in this. And so they agree, and they get it all set up, and, and they start earlier in the morning, and the, the prophets of Baal put their oxen up, and they start praying. And, and they pray pretty fervently. They're very loud. Their faith is a show. Like, like, their whole God is a show. It's all about what you can get and what you can do. And so they put on a show. They dance around the altars. They tear their clothes. And eventually, it rolls on and on and on, and it's not working. Nothing is happening. And Elijah sees that. He sees that opportunity and says, 
At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy in traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. If you look at it in other, vers- in other versions, this is my favorite part. It says that, ah, maybe he's taking a leak. You know, maybe he just doesn't care. He's got other stuff going on. Elijah sees this, and he's so confident in his Lord, so confident that he can see that and mock them because of the way that they treat his God. And, it, and then he responds not by doing the same. He, in fact, he calls a, a couple of the prophets over and a couple of his servants over, and he has them go fill jars. There's four jars. He has them fill with water. And the Bible says it fills it with about 24 pounds of water. Weird way to measure water, but okay. And they fill that, and they, they pour it over the ox, and they dig a trench so that the water doesn't just run off, but it gathers, and it sits right there. And then once they do that once, he's like, great, do it again. And they do it again, and, and he's like, it's still not enough. Do it again. I want this thing to be soaked. I want this to be covered so there's no denying if it lights on fire. And then he takes his breath, and, and, and he, he looks to the Lord, and it says, at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. The Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. If you notice the way he talks to him, it's not loud. It's not boisterous. It's not this show. It's not this, let me perform for you. It's intimate. It's relational. It's, hey, God, I I know this about you. Like, would you share this with your people? Like, I know this about you. I'm confident in you. Would you share that so that they would believe it too? Immediately after that, fire rains down from the sky, and it lights the fire to the point where it scorches all of the wood, all of the stones, burns them all up, and soaks up all of the water sitting in the trench. And immediately the prophets of Baal recognize that their God was wrong. Immediately they bow down and start praying, have mercy on us. And Elijah rounds them up and, and takes them down. And is like, hey, this is death. And, and they get murdered by the sword. They get killed by the sword, all the prophets. Because what they had chosen wasn't God. Now Ahab, the king, sees this. And is so stirred up by it and so scared by it that he runs back to his wife, Jezebel. Jezebel is really the one that kind of wore the pants in that relationship. She immediately... It's like, oh, that's fine. I'm going to go find Elijah. So she sends a messenger out, and, and the messenger goes to Elijah and says, may the gods, still not recognizing the one God that just showed that they are God, may the gods deal with me ever so severely if I do not have you killed by noon this time tomorrow. She sees that she is wrong. She sees that the God that she is worshiping and, and continuing on is not the God But instead of turning from that, she is like, I'm doubling down. And I know I'm wrong, but I don't care. You're an inconvenience to me. Ahab had a name for Elijah, and it was the troubler of Israel because he kept poking the bear. And Jezebel had it and was like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to send somebody to kill you. And Elijah responds to that. The very next line says, Elijah was afraid. 
And out of his fear, Elijah took off. He dished everybody. He left all of his servants behind. He left everybody behind, and he ran until he was exhausted. When he was exhausted, he found a tree. He just sat under this tree and, and wept and sat with the Lord. And under that tree, he said, look, God, I can't do this. I'm no better than my ancestors. Just kill me. It's what I deserve. Just kill me. If you notice here, and, and follow me along with this, because it's going to seem counterintuitive at first. If you notice here, the emotion that Elijah is feeling in that moment actually doesn't match the situation. Like, yes, he's, he's being threatened to be killed. He, like, the fear is coming from that. That part makes total sense. But he just came from trusting the Lord so harsh that he was able to kill 450 prophets, but now he's afraid of one man and one woman. Like, it's such a hard switch because there's a part of his brain that immediately goes into, and I think we'll pull it up here, the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response. Learned about fawn yesterday. Your prefrontal cortex, or I think it's your pre, no, it's not your prefrontal cortex. Don't quote me on that. I dropped out of college. Um, there's a part of your brain that will shut down and say, these are your only responses. And it cuts off all rational thinking, and it cuts off all relational thinking. Those are the two big things that it inhibits, because those take time, and you don't have time in a survival situation. And, and Elijah's brain is like, this is a survival situation. And he couldn't fight. He had just gotten done doing that, and it didn't work. He couldn't freeze, because he had been murdered on the spot. And he couldn't fawn. If you don't know what fawning is, Fawning is where you relent, you say whatever you need to, to appease, and, and you give all of yourself to somebody. Somebody is calling you out on something, you're like, I'm so sorry. Yeah, you're so right. I, I, I did do that, and I'm sorry, even whether you did or not. It's just an appeasement of somebody. And he couldn't do that, because he, he was still responsible to the Lord. He knew, like, it, even though he was scared, he still knew who the Lord was, and so that was an admittance that he is that God would not be God, and, and he can't bring himself to do that, so he runs, and he takes off. Now, our examples of that might not be as extreme, but we do the exact same thing every single day, right? And there's a part of our brain that convinces us that it is that extreme. That, that served a purpose for a long time. You take any shepherd and, and watch them, they're like, oh, I had to kill a bear. Oh, I had to kill a lion. You don't have time for rational thinking in that. The rational thinking would be, hey, don't fight that bear. What you have to do, though, is hit it on his head with a stick and see what happens. You know, you don't have options. That is not our case in so many situations, but our body, because of high emotion, convinces us that it is. Convinces yourself that you're in the exact same spot. And if you don't believe me, how many of you have flipped off somebody when they cut you off? Anger. That is fighting. That is an immediate, big emotion that causes a response. Maybe anger is not what you go to. Maybe you're with your spouse and you're at a party and maybe somebody doesn't know you're together and, and, and they say something about your, your wife or your husband. It's like, man, they're so attractive. And you immediately get a tinge of jealousy. And, and that harbors it. You hide it. You flee from it. And it grows in you. And you go to bed that night and you sleep a little bit farther on the other side of the bed. And you get a little bit more distance and you don't talk. Not because your partner did anything wrong. You agree with it. You think your partner's hot. What they're saying is right, but there's a part of it that it just hits a note in you that triggers that fight, flight, flee, or fawn. Freeze or fawn. 
your body convinces yourself that it's life or death. Same thing happens. I'm so guilty of fawning. I, I think about my childhood, and, and there was a lot of times my dad would call me out on things, right or wrong. My, my dad was a very stern man. He was a good man, but he was a stern man. And I would, I would relent. I, I would just be like, hey, there's no winning in this. So I will tell you whatever you need to hear so that this is okay, so that we are okay. Like, the convincing is that we are okay if I fawn to you. That's such a hindrance to a relationship. And I'll blame myself. As a kid, you're like, ah, I'm even out. I need to be okay. And that's there, like, like it is. None of these, I, I, you can't blame somebody for responding in any of these ways. It's all survival. They don't even think about it. But what that did is that hindered relationship. Me and my dad have a really hard time because I see my childhood as really hard. And my dad saw it as really good because all I did was respond to him and tell him it was okay. That has hindered us big time, and we're still working through that. In a lot of ways, we don't see eye to eye. Like, that's the consequences uh, of what happens when we go off of our immediate reactions. Like, it, it, it takes something from us. We are missing something when our emotions don't match the situation and we respond out of this. So what does that disconnect cost us? It costs you something. If you are acting out of your immediate response, it costs you something because the reality is, is your survival means to get by lead to survival results. And your survival results are, are thin and they are bare. Take the example of the road rage. What happens if, you, if your kid's sitting in the back of the car? You're supposed to be safe. You're supposed to be gentle, you're supposed to be loving, and they just watch you scream at somebody for the minor thing. What happens to your relationship with your spouse when you're feeling jealous? Maybe you sleep on the other side of the bed, maybe you become lonely, you know? A lot of people in that situation, they wander into their office and they pull up a website that'll make them feel better. And then there's shame, there's guilt. The relationship is hindered even farther based off of something that wasn't actually a really problem in the first place, but we, it is amazing what we can convince ourselves of. It is amazing what we can convince ourselves of. The other tricky part about this is that we are super slow to learn, if we learn at all. You know, there's this, this author, his name's Peter Scanzella, great author, talks a lot about brain science and, and generational sin and all that. And he has a great saying that goes, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. Like how guilty are we of doing the same exact things we said we never would that we watched our parents do? That's not your fault either. It's backed up by brain science. Uh, there's this book called The Other Half of Church that talks about the difference between your left and your right hemisphere. And in that book, it describes the process that we go in decision-making that's unconscious our immediate response to things. You go through one-sixth of a second that decides how we're gonna respond to a, situ a situation if we need to respond to it immediately. And it goes through a lot of processes of like, hey, is this good, bad, or scary? You know, is this personal? But the last one it goes through is it runs it through a little database that you have in your brain that can hold at most three examples of how our people respond to this. That's why community is so important. That's why the Lord talks about community so much. Because your brain literally puts examples in front of it that say, this is how our people respond, so this is how we respond. And as a child, your people are your parents. Your people are the people that are closest to you. And so, of course, you're going to respond the way they do. They're the examples that are in front of you, and it's unconscious. Your brain does it before you can even think about it. 
that is why he says our granddad is in our bones, because he is. We respond the same way. You watch the way that Solomon's son did the same thing he did, and he did the same thing as David did, and it's just a cycle of this that needed correction. It needed somebody to intervene. All this does is it leads to hindered relationship. That is like when you respond out of that, when you cut off the relational part of your brain, your actions hinder it farther. It hinders it more and more and more. Going back to the story here, the next part of it is Elijah sitting under this tree. He's met by this angel. And this angel sits next to him and says, He came to a broom brush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. He tells the Lord, I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. You notice the first response of the angel is not to say anything, but it's to touch him. Picture yourself being in that car again with the road rage. What happens when somebody grabs your arm? Your spouse sitting next to you, like, grabs your arm. Don't have to even say anything. It's calming. It, it wakes you back up. It reignites that part of your relational brain, and it pulls you out of the fight, flight, or freeze. Like, relationship is the way out of that. You notice the last part, the angel says, for the journey is too much for you. So they made Elijah get up, and he ate, and he drank, and he was strengthened by that food. So he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Now, if you think about that, that's 40 days that we don't know anything about. Uh, that's 40 days where he was just walking and, and Doing the math on it, uh, in Deuteronomy, there's a section that talks about a place super close to Beersheba where he is, and it says it's about 420 kilometers. That's about 260 miles. And this is desert, and this is mountains, and he's expected to walk. Like, there's a reason the angel says, hey, this journey's too much for you, because it is. Who could do that? Who could, who could be broken down to getting to that point? And, and so he walks. And he walks and he walks and he walks and he's exhausted. And he can't do it. I think we feel that a lot. I, I have been in counseling for the last five, six years. And this last week I was in counseling with my counselor, Terry, and we were talking about the cycles of work. You know, as a, as a minister, one of my biggest fears is burnout. And, and I'm so prone to it. That's just part of the nature. And I think we all are if we're honest with ourselves. And, and while we were talking about this, we are talking about the two cycles of work that I tend to go through. One of them is over here. The cycle is like, I see that there's work to be done. I do the work. I'm tired. There's more work to be done. And you just hit that circle. And you slowly go down farther and farther and farther. The other circle that is right next to it says, I see there's work to be done. I don't do that work. And then the response is, I'm anxious and I'm exhausted because I, I didn't do the work. And there's still more work to be done. And so I come back around to that, but I'm more anxious. I'm more exhausted than when I, was, when I originally started it because the, the work is wearing on me. I'm carrying the weight of that work. It's exhausting. It's heavy. 
and I didn't get anywhere. There's still work to be done. There's still more to move. And my counselor, Terry, as I was, I was processing this with him, he goes, hey, what if they're the same? You know, what if those two circles are the same? I think it's easy. The enemy wants us to believe that they're separate. But if you really think about it, they are the same circle. It starts with, hey, there's work to be done. When we are fresh, when we are new, work, if we're honest, isn't that hard. It's time-consuming, but it's not hard. So you work a little. And then you see there's more work to be done. And you have an option, hey, you can work more. Or you can not do it. Say you do it. You work more. You're more exhausted. And then you see there's more work to be done. You can choose to opt out or you can choose to opt in. And eventually, you wear yourself down to the point where you start opting out because you can't handle it. You're too exhausted. You're too worked. You're too tired to continue on. And so then you start opting into the, I'm not going to do it, which then starts, oh, I'm anxious because I didn't do it. And there's still the same amount of work. Like, there will always be work. There will always be work. Elijah was very clearly, like, overworked and, and, and exhausted. Like, like, this guy had spent the last years of his life living in the wilderness for the Lord. He, he had to carry dead children up a stair and, and then watch the Lord bring them back to life and bring them back down. He had to eat just bread from a woman who thought that she was going to die and starve. He ate food from ravens. Like, like he had such a hard life that was so dedicated to the Lord. And you watch that in his prayer. Uh, when, he's, when he's talking to the prophets of Baal, he's like, Lord, I trust you. I'm here. I've seen this. I've walked through this with you. I've been through the hard with you. Like, we're doing this. I trust you. This is the first moment where you see he's like, maybe I don't. Because he's worked so much that he's worn himself out to this point where he's actually afraid. He's like, yeah, yeah, I know all those other stuff we've done. I know I've always been provided for, but maybe this is the one that's too much. And his anxiety pushes him away. And, and it pushes him away from that relationship. And that's when it's broken. That's when we go into the fight or flight. He also keeps hanging on to this idea that he's the only one left. And, and if you look farther, when he gets to the cave, it says that the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant and torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. That's not true. <laughs> if you go back a, a single page, he meets this guy, Obadiah. And Obadiah was hiding prophets in caves. Jezebel was trying to kill all of the prophets, and Obadiah was hiding them and feeding them, and he shows them at least a hundred of them. Like, Elijah has all this proof in his face, and I don't blame him for believing it, but he keeps repeating to the Lord in, in basically a court case. What he had done is he had spent 40 days making his court case of, about, hey, this is what I'm going to bring to the Lord. This is why I'm exhausted. This is why I want to die. This is why I'm over it. Like, this is all the evidence, and he fully believes it. And, and we do, too. We fully believe the things that we say, whether they're true or not. He was not alone. He was not the only prophet. In fact, he left his servants when he became afraid. It says he left them behind. He wasn't alone. He left them. He's not the only one doing it. But in his court case, because he has to justify himself, he convinces himself of that. We're so guilty of that. I do the same exact thing. Like, like going back to my ministry job, it is easy for me to put the weight of the Lord on myself. It is easy for me to say, if I don't 
my, my job, if you don't know what Young Life is, is, is I, I go where kids are to, inter- like to be in their lives, to be a stable adult into their lives with the hope of, of one day of them meeting Jesus. Like, that is my whole job. My whole job is to get volunteer leaders, set them up as well as I can to do the same. So I do it, and I help other people do it. And it's so easy for me to sit there and think, yeah, but if I don't go, who will? If I don't do this, who will? Same thing for a a church pastor. It's like, if I don't talk to these people, who will? And it's, it's not just relegated to ministry. If you think about it, think about your kids. You can sit there and think, ah, my kids have to love Jesus. My kids have to. I have to get them there. I have to make sure that happens. Or say you don't have kids and you have a spouse, you're like, I have to be the best husband ever. I have to be the best wife ever. Like, that is, that's on me. That's my role. Are any of those realistic? Are any of those in your control? I'll tell you what. I'll tell you this right now. You won't be the best husband ever. You won't be the best wife ever. Your kids are going to choose whatever they want to choose. You can be there. You can be an influence. You can guide. But the weight of that choice is on them, not on you. That's just the way it goes. The weight is not on you. In fact, if you try to do that, you're going to burn out. If that's the route you go, it's an endless, endless cycle of work because you can never do it. The Lord is very clear with that with Elijah. And he says, hey, this journey is actually too much for you. I'm going to be super blunt. Like, what you're feeling is valid. Like, this, this whole thing, you're like, hey, I actually can't do that. I'm no better than my ancestors. I deserve to just die. The Lord's like, hey, that's actually super valid. You can't do it. Welcome. Well, well, <laughs> I'm glad we figured that out together. But it's the way the Lord meets him in that right afterwards. If you see that, he doesn't condemn him. In fact, he, he takes care of Maslow's hierarchy of needs where, where he feeds him, and he takes all these things that takes him out of survival mode. He touches him so that it's relational and then says, I need you to go catch your breath. Go for a walk. And it's a heck of a walk, but it's relational. And it's there and hits every bit that pulls him out of this fight or flight mode and allows him to have a relationship with the Lord again. And the Lord doesn't condemn him. He doesn't reprimand him. He asks him questions. He's like, I want to actually know what's going on here. I I want you to tell me what's going on here. I want to hear it from you. I know exactly what's going on, but I want to hear it. It's the same thing Jesus does. Whenever Jesus is asked a question, he responds with a question. It's relational. He gets to know his people. The thing about that is Elijah responds with his court case, and and the Lord hears that, and he sees that. What happens next is he says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. To whisper to somebody, you have to be close. You're not going to hear it if you're not. To whisper to somebody is intimate. It's relational. It's close. And you watch the way Elijah hears it. And he moves out. He goes to join the Lord. And he does it with shame. He puts a cloak over his head. You know, Elijah is feeling so much shame in this moment because he just, he he had a 40-day walk of shame. He just sat there and said, Lord, I can't do this. Like, I deserve to die. This is what I deserve. I'm in so much shame, so much guilt. This is what I deserve. 
And he's still in that, even in the relational part of it. Now he just feels the shame and guilt, the same way you would, you know, taking the earlier example of like, hey, going to your office and, and looking at a website you know you're not supposed to. Like there's shame and there's guilt and there needs to be relationship on the other side. And so you have to go. And we do that with shame and we do that with guilt. But you continue to watch the way the Lord responds to him. I think this is a turning point in this story. I also think Elijah was angry with the Lord. He's like, look at what all I'm doing. I am zealous for you. My whole life is yours. I've given everything for you. And they still want to kill me and it's not enough. Like, where the heck are you? And I think that gentle whisper pulls him out of that state. And, and the Lord's tone changes. And I think Elijah's tone changes too. It doesn't say it specifically. It, it would be super easy to miss. And this is just my inference. So take it with a grain of salt. But Elijah repeats word for word the same thing he just says. But I think he does it like a broken puppy. Like a dog that, or, or, or a kid that's finally had enough and is saying it through tears. He's like, God, I am, I'm zealous for you. And this is still happening. I'm still alone. They are killing everybody. And they want to kill me too. I'm hurting. I'm hurting so bad. And follow that up with what God says. He doesn't fix the problem. That's relationship. You don't fix the problem. Because the problem is never actually the problem. Elijah responds to him saying, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And he responds by saying to him, go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yah reserved 7,000 in Israel. All those knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. God is very clear here that he has a very different perspective on this situation than Elijah. Elijah's situation, he feels shame, he feels guilt, he feels like he can't measure up because he couldn't do the work. That's all true. He couldn't do the work. Or at least he couldn't take the weight of the work. See, God sees all of this. He sees it from the same person. He sees it like with the same result, but a very different perspective. God never asked Elijah to take on the weight of all of this. Elijah, he's not responsible for it. He's asked to partner. He's asked to take on little bits. He's asked to do little things slowly and surely and trust where the Lord is going. He doesn't get to know where the Lord is going. That's the part about it that's tricky. That's the part about it that scares us. That's the part about it that triggers the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Because we don't get to know where we're going. And when we don't know when we're going, we don't have power. We don't have structure. We have to grab onto something and anything that grounds us. And, and, and so often we do that by trying to look for something that grounds us instead of trusting that the Lord's there. That he's always there. Whether you feel him or not, he's present. And you, you can lean into that. And it takes faith to lean into that. That's why faith is so important. So often we look for something tangible. 
We're like, Lord, just give me a sign. Lord, just tell me what to do. And he's like, I, I actually don't care about what to do. I need you to need me. You don't need me when you're trying to take the weight on, on yourself. In that, God recognizes Elijah's exhaustion. He recognizes the way that he's been in that cycle for so long. That work, more work, work, more work, work, more work, without rest. And so he offers him rest. God doesn't say the work is finished. He, he doesn't say you're done. He doesn't say anything like that. He's like, okay, you're exhausted. Let me appoint somebody to take this on. Because the reality is, is God's work will be done with or without Elijah. God's work was done well before we ever got here. God's work will be done well after we are gone. That's just a reality that keeps us humble. It's not about us. Nothing about it is dependent on us. What God has done with Elijah throughout his life and throughout his experience was he asked him to partner with him. The, the Lord is very clear when he talks about, hey, we get to be his bride. We get to be his partner. We get to join him. We get to follow along. We get to be in relationship with him. And through that, we're going to experience the ride of our life. But you don't get to be in control. You're not even close. It's not going to look like what you think it's going to look like. It's not going to look like what you want it to look like. But in doing so, you're no longer living off of survival techniques, and so you're no longer getting survival results. You have life, and you have life to the fullest. That's what it actually looks like. That's what Jesus promised us. And that's the nice part about being on this side of Jesus is we know that that's fulfilled. It has never been more in our face that, hey, there was something you can't do that I did. I had the way to this. See, Elijah, in, in his moment, was so concerned about people's salvation, was so concerned about people's relationships with the Lord, but didn't have the Messianic king in front of him to say, hey, I'm going to show you that only I can do this. We get to lean into that now. We're here. We have Jesus. We have the Messianic king. It's like, I paid this when you couldn't. Now be with me. I open that door. We can be in a relationship. There's no more consequences to death. The Lord does the same thing with Elijah. If you continue on into 2 Kings, I, I believe it's 2 Kings 2.19. You get a little story. So Elijah has gone down. He's anointed Elisha. He did a couple little other works. He did all the things the Lord asked him to do. And now he's fully expecting. The Lord's like, I'm going to take you away. I'm on the same page as you. You actually weren't able to do my work. You think you deserve death to be with me. You want to escape this as you fleeing. I'm going to give you something better. When they had crossed the river, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elijah replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elijah saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. The Lord saw the same results as Elijah did, but he got him there without having to taste death. Elijah thought he deserved death. Elijah saw what he did, saw that he was exhausted, saw that he couldn't do it. He's like, I am worthy of nothing. Kill me. I can't do this. I'm the same as my father. I'm the same as my ancestors. The Lord saw that and said, yeah, you're right. You are the same as your ancestors. 
my people. I love my people. You are broken, you are exhausted, and I'm going to rescue you from death. That's the same offering for us. We are broken. We are exhausted. We try to carry a yoke that is not ours to carry. If you don't know what a yoke is, it's the piece of wood that gets strapped between two oxen when they're plowing a field, that they get to plow the field together, and it pulls them in line. What Jesus offers us is he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That yoke is offered to you. Now, I want to be super clear. He says the yoke is easy and the yoke is light. He doesn't say the yoke is not there. There's still things that you're going to be asked to do. He's going to pull you in directions. Relationship is going to be hard, but it's going to be honest, and it's going to be beautiful, and it's going to lead more to s- than survival situations. It's going to be life, and it's going to be life to the fullest. So I think that's what we're going to leave you today. The big overarching statement, I think we have one last slide for this. It says, we don't get to choose the outcome, but we get to choose to follow. That's it. That sums it up. I mean, you want to talk about a relationship with the Lord, it can be summed up in that one sentence. You don't get to choose the outcome. You don't get, you don't get to choose the way it plays out. You don't get to choose the highs, the lows. You don't get to choose it. But it will be better than whatever you choose for yourself. Because it will be life. It will be life to the fullest and will not end in you just trying to survive. He wants a partner. He wants a bride. That's the easiest invitation there is. So we're going to leave with that today. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and I think we have a couple worship songs if y'all would like to stand to join me. Um, Lord, thank you. God, it's such a healthy reminder for us to sit there and say, hey, I actually can't do your job. I, I, I can't carry the weight of that. I can't do that, God. I, I feel that right now in ministry, I feel that right now over our community is, is such, we have a culture of working, Lord, and we are what we do. God, would you remind us that we are yours, not that we are what we do. I ask that you just be present, that you be here with the worship, that you would feel glorified, and that you'd go out with us as we go back to the community and we get to look for ways that we don't have to respond with fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. But we get to respond with, I trust you. You are it. And you give me life to the full, Lord. Would you give us life to the full? Would you be who you say you are? Would you love us and would you walk with us well, God? We love you. You're a good father, a good husband, a good man. Would you be with us? Amen.